And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let me get this straight. So you're telling me that there was a farmer, and this farmer had a dog. Fine, but was Bingo the dog's name-o, or the farmer's name-o? To no dunks for Wednesday, January nineteenth. I'm Tass Mellis. With me is the bearded one, Trey Kirby. Hey yo, hey yo, and of course the international man of mystery is here, Lee Ellis. Friends, mm. <laughs> and the man making the magic happen for sixteen plus years now, JD. Hello, hello, JD. No skeets today. He's in health and safety protocols. We'll be back soon, as soon as JD, Dr. JD, gives him the clearance, <laughs> uh, hopefully very, very soon. But today, we are very excited to have on a guest we've been waiting for for a long time, because we've had his book in our midst for a while, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s New York Knicks is out just yesterday. Chris Herring, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. We are so excited to have you because yeah, we've been passing around this book. It is fantastic, Chris. I will start with a question about something that really kicks off the book uh, and has been uh, getting a lot of headlines. <laughs> and I chuckle every time I think about it. Uh, the Knicks' Xavier McDaniel was known to uh, hold up a towel with his erect member in the locker room, and you start the book with it, essentially. So a couple questions. Why did you start with it? Why did you start with it, and how was the process going about finding out about this uh, Xavier McDaniel story? Well, I, I was not going to look for that detail. I was not going and asking people, you know, did, by the way, did Xavier McDaniel tie towels around his penis? Uh, that was not the plan necessarily from jump. But, you know, in, in that first chapter, I'm essentially trying to sum up who the Knicks are. You guys have read it, so you know this. I basically opened the book with a, a scene 15 minutes into a practice where it's you know, there's no air conditioning in, in the practice facility the Knicks are using in Charleston, South Carolina, 1991, uh, upon Pat Riley's arrival. And, you know, you, you, you know, there have been movies about this. Spike Lee has made movies like this where uh, it's annoyingly hot outside or it's annoyingly hot, just kind of the atmosphere. It's wet. It's drippy. It's, you know, it, there's condensation. It's, it's gross. And these guys are agitated because of that. And not to mention that they're in a box out drill, which is basically giving permission for guys to just knock the crap out of each other while they're trying to grab rebounds. And Anthony Mason and Xavier McDaniel are among those people in the drill. And Xavier McDaniel is winning the drill, but he's tripping people as he does it. <laughs> um, and he's tripping Anthony Mason. He's tripping a rookie named Patrick Eddy. And at one point, 
Anthony Mason says, you do that stuff again, I'm going to F you up, basically, within the first few minutes of the practice. So he gives him a warning. But then, you know, Xavier McDaniel, he doesn't care. He beats up everybody for a living. So he does it again and continues to do it. And Anthony Mason, as far as he was concerned, had already given out his warning. So he goes and he punches Xavier McDaniel squarely in the jaw. And it starts a brawl, you know, 15 minutes into practice that Pat Riley and everybody else has to rush in and sprint in to break up. So anyway, that set the tone for what the 90s Knicks were going to be. To your question about uh, the Xavier McDaniel thing in particular, I was trying to find stuff that would sum up how supremely physical this team was and the fact that this was a team that very much seemed to kind of thrive on its manhood. And I had a bunch of stuff in there about Anthony Mason and why this mattered so much to him and why he was wound up and wired the way he was wired. And I thought about it, I was like, I don't have much about what motivates Xavier McDaniel. And I got to get back to that theme of manhood and kind of like this battle for supremacy on the first day of practice between a couple of really strong guys. And then in doing interviews, I, I got to basically the end of the book from a research, you know, reporting perspective. And someone told me, by the way, did you know Xavier McDaniel when he was in our... Sonic's locker room, he would tie a towel around his dick. <laughs> what? Like, out of nowhere, Frank Bukowski tells me that. And the whole reason I had interviewed Frank Bukowski, he was essentially the first person that Anthony, Ma- I'm sorry, that Xavier McDaniel ever punched in a practice. Uh, you know, Xavier McDaniel was three days into the league, and, you know, maybe one day in the league, I can't remember what it was, in, in training camp, and Frank Bukowski just takes a blow to the face. And, you know, he was, like, telling me about how Xavier liked to fight everybody and liked to know know where he stood. And, you know, and maybe he liked to know where he stood in other ways as well as far as showing everybody (laughs) stuff with a towel wrapped around it. But I felt like it was meaningful just because this is someone that is going around showing everybody how tough he is or, you know, how sprung he is, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. I do think there's something instructive about that, and that was why I put it there once I got the detail. It's not a detail I was looking for. It was not something I'd heard prior to Frank Bukowski telling me that. Yeah, so that wasn't where the the whole book idea came from, someone telling you about Xavier McDowell. Well, but Chris, honestly, this this book is fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was so well written, so well researched. You spoke to everybody seemingly who is associated with the team, whether it was a player, personnel, whoever. Um, And And I wanted to ask you this, though, because the way you write about and describe Pat Riley, you know, he dresses like a mob boss. He's got the million dollar suits, the slick back hairs, the hair. uh, He ruthlessly sort of rules his team and he wants things done his way or no way at all. He's got no sympathy for his opponents. And he even kind of ordered hits on Nick's opponents. I mean, did you feel like you were writing about a mob boss at all there with, with, with just the way that Pat Riley operated this team? Uh, a little bit. Um, you know, he he comes across, I'll put it this way. Someone tied to those Heat teams, the current Heat team, told me, I've got your book. I'm so happy for you, proud of you. Um, can you, if I send you a copy, can you send it back to me and sign one for Pat? And I was like, are you sure that Pat Riley wants a copy of this book? Uh, you know, with the way it portrays him. I, I, I was not out to get him, uh, certainly, but I was out to tell the truth. And the truth about Pat in this book is that he's intense on a level that I think we, you know, we knew some of it, but the way, I mean, he talks at one point about uh, a staffer that he's essentially let go of, a, a popular staffer from the Knicks. Some of the people around the team were kind of upset about it. And Pat could feel that and sense that. And one day in practice, he just decides to kind of, you know, say out loud, he's like, you know, I know some of you guys are upset about that. 
but sometimes you got to take a hostage shoot him in the head and then look around and say who's next like it was basically his way of saying if you don't like it you can go out the same way too yeah um and it's like who who speaks that way like a, a coach that's new to a job he you know he fired the team he didn't fire he, he uh distanced the team psychologist from the rest of the team a guy that had worked with the Knicks for years so he was making this exactly the way kind of in his image um the team psychologist went out of his way to tell me that uh, Pat used the phrasing or heard from the Knicks that the phrasing was Pat wants his own voice to be the only one in the room. So he wanted these guys to only be hearing him. He really didn't want people around. He would not let his team scouts sit and watch practices. They had to have advance permission to come by. They could not just come into town and watch practice for a day. So Pat was very paranoid. Um, he was very... I think he went a little bit hard with this player sometimes. I mean, you have two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour shoot-arounds, not practices, cool. but shoot-arounds the mornings of games that rubbed some players the wrong way. Uh, but he was in charge, and everybody knew that part of it. Everybody saw that on day one. So my boss, there were times where it felt that way, <laughs> but really it was just someone that was like, you know, seemed like burnout was a likely possibility with somebody like that just because he was putting his foot on the pedal so hard all the time. And uh, – it makes me wonder whether he could have lasted much longer than the four years he was in New York. Maybe if he'd been in a management role the way he switched into in Miami, but even if he'd gotten ownership and stayed with the Knicks, just, he was wound a different way and uh, motivated a different way in a way that I do think Burns coaches out. Yeah, that's one of the surprising things to me is looking back, like, you know, you go through the basketball reference page and Pat Riley was only the coach of the Knicks during the 90s for four seasons, but they seemed like a Pat Riley team the entirety of the 90s because of the culture he built. Do you think that they're able to sustain the success they had in the first half of the 90s, even deeper into the 90s, if Pat Riley sticks around? And would there have been any sort of way... Uh, for him to stick around New York, you know, given the paranoia and kind of the overdrive mentality uh, that he brought to the team that just kind of, like, like you're saying, maybe wore him out eventually. Yeah, I mean, I think the media took a toll on him. Uh, he was paranoid about that. He, I mean, he, but he'd been paranoid before. He was paranoid with the Lakers, too, and I think that was kind of some of the unraveling there. You mm -hmm. know, I, I have the detail on the story that had been out there before, I think, in someone else's book, uh, but he, during the end of that Lakers run, he kind of befriended a reporter and was trying to convince the reporter, the columnist, to write about how the Lakers girls were, the Laker girls were a distraction. Um, that, you know, they would come out late at the end of the game and maybe the players would be distracted or something. And so it was, he was trying to put that idea in the columnist's ear to essentially get management to rethink whether they should be out there at all. And so he was trying to use essentially the columnist as like a mouthpiece. Um, so he was paranoid about that. But keep in mind, he won four titles with the Lakers mm -hmm. during those eight years that he was there, whatever it was. So I think for that reason, um, the expiration date could kind of be pushed off a little bit because you're winning. And that gives you a different sort of feeling than it does when you're getting really close and losing. And so had the Knicks, you know, I think the most interesting question to ask with Riley is like, does the situation look wholly different or totally different if they win in 94? And I think the answer is probably yes, that the strain and the stress and, and the paranoia probably isn't as present by 95 if he wins in 94. And the idea of, quite frankly, I don't know that he was ever going to get an ownership stake in New York. The you know People overlook the fact that Mickey Harrison, the Heat... My thing is that I think Riley probably 
would have wanted more of a conversation and more of an ownership stake if he does win in 94. The Knicks might not have been able to do that. Mickey Arison could give an ownership stake because he basically owned the team. His family owned the team by itself, by himself. Uh, the Knicks were corporately owned, so you couldn't just really give away 10% of the team because there are a lot of shareholders that are going to say, no, you can't just give away 10% of my investment. So, you know, but I think that if they win a championship, the feelings are better around the team, that you're not stressed, as stressed at least. You're going to feel a little bit better about going into 95. But, uh, yeah, Pat, there was something about the way he coached the team and the constant pedal to the metal mentality that he had. Um, it burns guys out. It burned him out, I think. And I think the media was not helpful necessarily either um, in terms of, you know, all the infighting that they chronicled. You know, it's an aggressive media in New York City. But he still and I think that Warren Pat as well. But he still wants your autograph, which is absolutely <laughs> incredible. I can't wait to see Pat Riley in his Instagram photo with that book. Uh, so congratulations. That is, I mean, that has got to be a phenomenal feeling, Chris. Congratulations for that. Thank you so much. You know, uh, but speaking of 94, I mean, that's really the peak, isn't it, of this book? I mean, they are within one win. They got two chances to win the series. They go to Houston. And, of course, it's John Starks. You know, he has that that awful shooting performance there in Game 7. Now, uh, you know, at the start of this book, you know, Patrick Ewing basically gave a list to uh, Pat Riley and said, these are the teams I want to go to. And Pat Riley said to him, you know, just imagine – celebrating a championship here in in New York City on Broadway on the bus. Imagine how you would feel. I mean, he came so close to realizing that dream and, 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 you know, seeing that through. How sort of devastating do you think that was for Patrick Ewing to be so close there and just not be able to get over the line? Because he's still beloved, of course, in New York City by the Knicks, by everybody there. But he doesn't have that championship. I mean, you look at Dirk Nowitzki, who just had his jersey retired a couple of weeks ago here. How different would the story yeah. of Patrick Ewing being if he was able to bring a championship there to New York City? The legacy is a lot stronger. I mean, like you said, I, I think you said it perfectly. People love him still. Uh, I think they're protective of him in New York, maybe even in a way that they weren't when he was playing uh, these days. I think if you, if you talk to a lot of Knicks fans, they would tell you that some of them have soured on Charles Oakley, in fact, just because Oak has, over the last year, two years, really ever since the incident he had in the Garden where he was kicked out a couple years ago and hauled out of the Garden a couple years ago, uh, there's been some, you know, there's been some suggestions that Oakley was frustrated that Ewing didn't have his back when it came to that, that he didn't make a statement publicly about the fact that it was wrong to haul Oakley, one of the great Knicks, out of there the way they did. And so because of that, you've seen kind of a lot of sniping from Oakley's side about Ewing and I think some fans that you know swore by Oakley before now are frustrated with him or don't really really have the same love for him that they did before because to them Ewing you know showed up every day through injuries everybody knew he was banged up you know that was the way that he you know that he hurt himself in 99 during the finals run is that he played through something that was an Achilles injury that then turned into a little bit of a torn Achilles that kept him out the rest of the playoffs. So he always gave gave it everything he had, even when he shouldn't have been out there. Uh, they're very protective of Ewing. Um, I think the 99 one actually stung Patrick even more than 94. He said that before, where he essentially said, 99 hurt more because I'm sitting there watching us in a matchup where we need me. They played you know, Tim Duncan and David Robinson essentially without a starting center hmm. in that series because Patrick was out. Uh, so that one was a tough one for him to just sit on the sidelines and watch. You know, they lost the series in five. Um, and, it, you know, I think they probably would have lost the series anyway, even if he was able to play. But I do get what he's saying. And that, you know, that was the last real shot they had to make the finals with, with Patrick and that they did make it. Uh, but Patrick couldn't participate. So 94 was tough. You know, Patrick 
played pretty poorly in the 94 finals. I think at the time he broke a record for most block shots in a final series. Uh, so he was decent that way. But, um, you know, if you look, I think he shot something like 37, 34, 29, 21% in the first four games of the series or something crazy like that. Just he could not score on Hakeem Olajuwon. And, you know, I think Patrick is one of the all-time great centers, but Olajuwon was was better. And uh, it showed in that series. And it actually explains why Starks was shooting the way he was and shooting as much as he was. Because Patrick really just could not score on Olajuwon. Starks essentially became their number one option in that series. So I think Patrick felt like, even though they were closest in 94, you got the impression that Patrick almost talks about 99 as if that were the year he felt like they were closest. Because, he, you know, he knew he didn't perform well in 94. And he was part of the reason they didn't win in 94. In 99, he's like, man, I, I could have made that difference. I could have made that a competitive series. That's the feeling I've gotten from him on that. You mentioned that Ewing is still beloved by Knicks fans. Obviously, he's coaching at Georgetown now and has had uh, ideas of coaching in the NBA in the past. Do you ever foresee a future where the Knicks bring him in as their coach, just as like a you know a franchise legend and a guy who could deserve a shot at the highest levels? You know, I, I, I felt like there was a better chance of that um, a few years ago before he got hired at Georgetown. He, you know, Georgetown has not been great now granted it's a different job the recruiting aspect of it is really big um i do think he's gotten useful experience from the standpoint of just day-to-day interaction with the media that was something that people kind of suggested for years was something that was negatively impacting his chances of getting a job just that you know he was kind of a rough and gruff sort of guy that reporters were kind of not afraid of him but maybe not looking forward to you know they were all afraid walking through the locker room patrick would always have his feet um, stretched out and his knees iced up in the locker room and Patrick is a long dude and so you know you had little narrow aisles in the locker room you're trying not to step on people's feet and it was you know a, a, an effort that every reporter had to make to not step on his feet and I talked to one reporter that did one time stepped on one of Patrick's toes and was like <laughs> petrified that Patrick was going to go off on him. so just kind of this guy I think he's actually a really soft warm guy you just kind of have to know him and I think that he kind of kept the media at a distance He'd also been treated in a really racist fashion by, you know, in some cases the media, but certainly by fans uh, in college and in high school. So I think he was guarded more than anything. Uh, So, you know, it it took a while for that to wear off. I think maybe someone got in his ear and said, you've got to be a little bit more warm with the media if you want a coaching job. And so I think it was finally the case by the time he got to Georgetown, and I think even more so now. But Georgetown has it, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what exactly teams are looking for. I imagine winning is a big part of it at the NBA level, but, you know, I don't think Georgetown has done so well, and certainly this season they're struggling. I went to the Garden, I went to uh, the St. John's Georgetown game at the Garden the other night. Uh, Spike Lee was kind enough to ask me to join him for it, to sit courtside with them, nice. and we were looking, we are like, man, this Georgetown team, team is kind of rough, man. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Patrick wasn't coaching. I think he's, uh, well, I don't know if he's in health and safety protocols, but he hasn't been there for the last few games, but uh, Georgetown has, you know, they did win the Big East last year, the tournament, which was cool to see for him. Uh, and unexpected for him. So they made their first tournament appearance. But um, I don't know that they've been so good year in, year out that he's going to have a, an opportunity at the NBA level as a head coach right now, at, le- at least at this moment. Chris, I don't know if you saw the game last night there, the Knicks and the Wolves, but in the third quarter, there was a play where Julius Randle went in. He missed the shot. He went up for the rebound. He went up again uh, and he got fouled. And the crowd sort of roared. They loved the effort. They loved the intensity. It reminded me of one of the most iconic moments from the 93 final. Uh, conference finals there, Bulls-Knicks, 
with Charles Smith. I mean, uh, you know, he's remembered for that, for not being able to put the ball in the bucket with four opportunities there more than any other part of his uh, Knicks career. Now, um, to me, you know, we talked about Mason and McDaniel and Oakley and these guys who were tough guys, who, you know, that strong mentality. Charles Smith didn't seem to be like that. You know, he seemed to be just a nice guy who was out there, would work hard and try hard and didn't quite fit what the Knicks had. Um, how how tough was it writing about him and talk to him and, and just about his what he's remembered for by Knicks fans? Because, uh, you know, as I say, that, that sort of game, that moment there against the Bulls is probably honestly what more, more people remember about him than any other part of his career. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I I had a list of guys that when I went into this, I said, okay, this guy I'm going to write a chapter about, this guy, you know, Riley, Oakley, Mason, Starks, Ewing, certainly. Um, I didn't go in expecting to write a full chapter about Charles Smith, but it became pretty clear when I was going to start tackling that chapter of what happened in 93, had to have a chapter on Charles Smith. It was very clear that that part, um, and it's interesting because I kind of feel like in my mind, the closest they got was 94 because like you guys said before game six of that series of Starks makes a three and doesn't get blocked by Olajuwon they win the series right there let alone the opportunity to win it in game seven where Stark shoots two for 18 Um, so to me you had two opportunities to close that out with the Charles Smith play it was that sequence that maybe lost in that game but you know had they won that game, you still have to beat Michael Jordan one more time and then you've got to go in the finals and play against the Phoenix team that won more games than you but yet, I think that Charles Smith play stands out as more heartbreaking than even John Starks' two-for-18 game. And I think part of it is, you know, Charles Smith didn't have the the wonderful moments to prop him up the way that John Starks did. He didn't have a dunk on the Bulls that was, you know, euphoric for Knicks fans. Uh, he didn't have those good moments. Um, he just had that moment in a lot of people's minds. And, and he had the injuries that would come after. So it was tough. You know, I... I felt like I was trying to humanize him a little bit. Uh, I've heard John Stark say in interviews before, I can't go one day walking down the streets of New York City without someone telling me how much they love the dunk and how much they still love it. It's their favorite play. Um, And just the juxtaposition between that and people telling me that Charles Smith gets grief from fans every day about not finishing game five uh, the way that they would have liked. Um, And obviously it was not for any lack of effort. He was trying. but, you know, so I called Charles Smith. He did not speak with me for the book, but I did call him. I, I've got the impression he was kind of dodging me a little bit when I was trying to reach out via email and stuff like that. Um, I finally get a cell phone number for him. I call him. And I hear when he picks up the phone and says, hello, I hear the subway doors in the background. <laughs> and so that was something I did not know. <laughs> I realized that um, at that moment, he's still living in New York City. And I guess it makes sense based on what, you know, me hearing that people still give him grief about that. But that's it's it's kind of a you just think of that existence like you can't exist and just go to work or get on the subway. I mean, he's extremely recognizable. He still looks the same as he did during those years. He's six foot nine, six foot ten, whatever he is. Um, but he also can't get on a subway without people making a point to mention mm. what I imagine is one of the more painful parts of his professional life as, as a player. Uh, and something that it's not like he was trying to do that. And you know, I mentioned in the book too. He was pulled over by the police after that game. It just seemed like the worst day ever um, on several levels. But I I felt for him. And in this book, I also get into the fact that Pat Riley knew very quickly that this man didn't fit with his plans. Uh, On Literally on day one of practice and training camp with Charles Smith, there was an incident that happened, and Pat was kind of like, what did we get ourselves into here? And Pat coaches him that way. Kind of an ugly duckling, black swan sort of thing. 
And I think that took a, a mental toll and a psychological toll on Charles. And, and a few people say that over the course of the book, just that Riley, after a certain point, he probably saw it as him trying to get Charles Smith to kind of ascend and to take more responsibility and to play better and just kind of become this tough guy that he wasn't naturally. And uh, I, I felt for Charles a little bit and reporting that out and writing that out because it didn't seem like it was within his control. And really, for a team that had a bunch of guys that were kind of built on brawn mostly, um, this was a guy that was more finessed and had a lot of skill, a lot more offensive skill than most guys on the roster. And think about it. He was asked to play out of position. He was a power forward center uh, who had a, you know, a franchise record 51 points for the Clippers before he came over uh, in one game. And now is being asked to play small forward and being asked to guard Scottie Pippen at 6'10", 6'11". Like, that's not easy. Mm-hmm. He, having to play next to Oakley and Ewing instead of coming off the bench and letting Mason start and then being able to play his natural position there. So Riley was asking a lot of him. They asked him to lose 15, 20 pounds when he got there so that he could play a smaller position. Uh, it was not easy for Charles Smith, and I wanted to get that across. But also, I didn't think it was a lack of effort from him. I think he was trying really hard to fit in, but that was not who he was as a player. I think Riley could have gotten more out of him by just letting him be himself to some extent. And it's a tough situation for Charles Smith, kind of being the Xavier McDaniel replacement, right? He's going forehead to forehead with Michael Jordan. It's a little bit different than being a soft-spoken guy. You mentioned the sourcing and the reporting. Like, the appendix is incredible, man. All the people you talked to, all of the sources you went back to and checked out uh, to get all the information into this book. Did you have a favorite player to interview or research while you are getting... Uh, these chapters settled? Good question. Um, favorite player? I, I don't know if I had a favorite player necessarily that I spoke to. I definitely had favorite people and some of the executives and stuff were really helpful where they, their context was so wonderful. But I, I have a favorite detail. Maybe that's useful. Sure. Um, my favorite detail was one uh, <laughs> Chris Childs gave it to me. So he came in in 96. Um, and he came in the same year Allen Houston was signed and the year they traded for Larry Johnson. They traded Anthony Mason for Larry Johnson. Chris Childs, you know, one thing I wanted to get into, and I think any journalist will tell you that um, you learn the phrase show, don't tell, meaning that you want to show a really good detail and show what someone was or what something was about instead of just telling somebody. It comes across better. So I wanted really badly, I kept hearing about this team and kind of how notorious they were from a gambling perspective. And, um, you know, again, it's one thing to say that, you know, this team would bet and have hands of $50,000 at any given moment or whatever. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to explain the way that Chris Childs did to me that Charles Oakley was bringing leather duffel bags onto the plane, (laughs) minimum of $50,000 per trip. Um, So that's one thing. Uh, Some guys told me, and this didn't make it in the book, that they really didn't want to gamble with Charles because they knew he came up with Michael and Chicago. And they were like, you know, I basically had one or two people tell me from other teams. They're like, Michael, people wanted so badly to be in with Michael Jordan that they would help him cheat in the card game. And so we knew that Oakley came up with Michael. So we wanted nothing to do with his card games because we were worried that we were going to get swindled. So I heard that, uh, didn't include it just because I couldn't find enough corroboration for it to be able to put it in the book. But I thought it was interesting that some people were concerned about that. But what I heard specifically is that, you know, it was a team bonding exercise. These guys were extremely competitive, obviously from an athletic standpoint, but also just in general. They would race each other at a practice facility. Patrick Ewing would play the lottery every day, um, <laughs> despite the fact that he was one of the highest paid athletes of all time uh, during those years. Uh, so they always wanted to win at stuff, and they were very competitive. 
Oakley in particular really loved cards. Um, and he got angry with teammates that would not play cards on the plane. But keep in mind, Oakley, Mason, Ewing, Starks, they were paid in a much different way than the young guys were on the team and then the, the newcomers and the rookies and what have you. So, you know, they would use the rationale. All I have is my per diem. And, you know, I've got $150 here, $150 there. You know, maybe for the sake of the trip, you've got a lot of money with all the days combined and the per diem that you're going to have. But, you know, these guys are like, that's all I'm willing to gamble. I don't have enough money and you guys are playing high stakes games. I can't get into that because I don't have the money to pay you back, back if I lose. So Oakley started getting mad about the fact that guys wouldn't participate, couldn't participate. <laughs> so what he did at a certain point, this is what Chris Childs told me in 96, um, Oakley buys a credit card imprint machine, those old school <laughs> you know, those machines that you buy. He basically was like, okay, you guys can play on credit now. You're going to pay me 10% of whatever the money is. But like, now you ain't got no excuse no more to not participate in these games because it's not about cash. Like Now you can use your credit card. Like, aren't you happy that you can play now? So Oakley was trying to strong arm guys into playing and gambling with them. And that tells you, that shows you, I think, my point about how much they enjoyed gambling, or at least how much Charles Oakley enjoyed gambling. And I think that's an example of wanting to show the reader rather than just telling them that they like to gamble. I think that comes across way more strongly. Wow. That is absolutely brilliant. Oak. I can't imagine owing Charles Oakley money on record. <laughs> yeah. That's got to be bad. carbon copy? You owe me. That's incredible. So I think uh, Charles Oakley and Tyrone Hill in the 2001 playoffs like had yeah. beef because Tyrone Hill owed him money. Well, yep. Charles claimed that Tyrone owed him money from Sounds gambling. like he had the receipts. Yeah. <laughs> the literal receipts. It might, it, might have been from, it might have had the credit card receipt. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. And 2001. It all comes yeah. back to the Raptors. I guess Oak is sort of like the Masai Ujiri of GMs. You don't want to gamble with him. You don't want to trade with yeah. that guy. I <laughs> uh, don't want to mess with that. Uh, but uh, Trey talked about all the work you put into this book, Chris. Three years uh, of your heart and soul into this book. Is there a person or player or, or personnel that you look at a lot differently You know, from the beginning of this whole process? Now at this point, You've got a totally different perspective on that person. Um, totally, I'm not sure, but mostly, I think it's Riley. I, I you know, I thought he was the central character of this book. I, you know, at one point, my agent asked me when he looked at the cover images that we were thinking about, and we were the one that we ended up with was like a four month process. It was a composite. There's not a photo that exists of those five guys together. Ewing, Mason, Starks, Oakley, Riley. That didn't exist. I think we took three photos that existed and kind of placed guys, almost Photoshopped guys in to look that way. But at one point, my agent looked at the photo for the cover and said, are you sure you want Riley on the cover? And I kind of, you know, side-eyed him. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, to me, he's the central character in the book because he was he was the catalyst, at least one of the catalysts, along with maybe management, um, for the first four years of that run that were so successful out of nowhere. And then even when he leaves for Miami, he's their nemesis in Miami. And it starts a huge rivalry with the Miami Heat. So to me, like, even when he wasn't in the picture, he was still, you know, a, a key, key subject. And, you know, someone that got a, a thorn in the side, you know, um, you know, just someone that was really going to annoy and kind of fluster the Knicks over the rest of those four years. So, I, I think it was him. Uh, I think that, you know, the depths of which I realized, the depths to which I realized that he was, his messaging was crazy with regards to the car crashes and Rams headbutting each other and him showing video <laughs> of that to players before they take the court. 
the idea that Xavier McDaniel told me that he, um, you know, he got extremely exhausted from a three-hour shoot-around that they had uh, on a December 26th game before before a December 26th game against the Spurs, and the fact that he was so exhausted from the shoot-around that he almost overslept the game, okay. uh, and that he gets to the game, plays poorly because he's dead tired, uh, can't even guard Sean Elliott, who was a guy that was not much of a slasher during that time, was more of a set shooter. Um, he then, after the game is over, they get blown out. He shouts at Pat Riley in front of the whole team in the locker room, and he's saying, Pat, like, you're working us too hard. Like, we don't have anything left for the games. And Pat Riley responded by saying, actually, X, you know, we've got a post-practice lifting program that is mandatory that you haven't been to in weeks, and I'm fighting you for it. You're not working hard enough. A guy that had a three-hour shoot-around in the morning that he was so exhausted that he couldn't play, really, and be effective as a player. And Riley circled back and said, you're actually not working hard enough for me, in my opinion. That's how this guy was wired. He was telling guys to knock Michael Jordan to the floor. He was telling his players that if they helped these players up after knocking them down, that he would find them. Um, it was a guy that had the team trainer buy him spikes, um, you know, from the, the sports convenience store. And you know, slid into the room for a pregame speech, like a baseball slide into the room <laughs> with his spikes up. And he said, that's the way I want you guys to play from now on is with your spikes high. Basically meaning <laughs> if you take somebody out because of how aggressively you slide, so be it. That was the messaging he was getting across. So we knew some of that about Riley, but I think some of it was even more over the edge than I realized. Um, <laughs> it was just a facade that he had to look a certain way and to uh, – you know, he, he, he got gun shy when that messaging was put across in the media. He didn't want to come across that way in the media. He didn't want the league gunning for the Knicks and taking stuff out on the Knicks. But um, I realized he was more kind of crazy. And like I told you before <laughs> about the the color of the car and everything else and the idea that he was going to tell Dave Checkets that, you know, his wife, you, your wife can't get. Uh, she was calling to see. They were getting a Chevy Suburban. Dave Checkets was the team president. Yeah, of that's right. His wife's getting a Chevy <laughs> Suburban for the family. <laughs> And she says, okay, Dave, I'm going to get a forest green one. Is that okay with you? And Dave Checker says, that's fine. But Pat Riley is within range of the conversation. He can hear uh, Dave Checker's wife through the phone. And Riley gets this disturbed look on his face like, Dave, she can't get a green Suburban. Are you kidding me? And Checker starts laughing. Riley has a complete stone face. He's dead serious. And Checker's is like, you're being serious. And Riley's like, I'm completely serious. She can't get a green Suburban. That's that." Color represents the Celtics. <laughs> and, you know, Shekets is like confused. And he then, you know, he sees Riley is serious. So he tells his wife, okay, don't get green. She asks for another color. Will red work? Shekets says, red is fine. I'm fine with that color. <laughs> and Riley looks even more perplexed than he did the moment before. And he's like, you can't get red. That's the bull. Like, <laughs> A red car. So this is someone that, like, those sorts of anecdotes, the guy was just wound really tight in a way that, you know, I'm not competitive on that level. Um, you know, I, Riley might be in a league of his own from that standpoint. Like, I feel like you could Photoshop his head onto Michael Jordan's body, and it was like everything, everything literally was like, and I took that personally. That was how Pat Riley viewed all this stuff. All of it was personal to him. And I think sometimes it did come back to bite him and the Knicks in the ass a little bit. So, uh, I mean, are there any plans then to maybe do a follow-up book? Because when Riley leaves in this book and he goes to Miami, it's almost like in, in Goodfellas when Tommy gets murdered. It's like, oh, you lose. Even if it's a character, you sort of think, 
I don't love this guy, but I sort of love the way he is. You, you wanted to see more of him. So, I mean, have you considered maybe doing a follow-up from Riley's uh, Miami Heat point of view? I'd not thought of it. I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, next potential projects. I feel like everyone from Spike Lee to my agent to my book editor to friends of mine have asked me, like, what's next for you? And, uh, you know, while this is in people's consciousness, maybe I should come up with an idea. But I want to give it some thought. I mean, I've been so into this for the last three years, really. And I I think because I wrote it without any sort of book leave or leave of absence, I really haven't had uh, enough time or space to really consider what's next but yeah i mean those heat teams certainly were fascinating uh i think part of what i benefited from in my reporting for this book is by doing something that is on a team that existed 25 to 30 years ago people are more willing to talk and willing to step back and say this was a really great era let's talk about it in a way that i'm especially riley uh i think riley might not have the ability to do that like riley i think he's on record admitting that he was very close to sending like a dan gilbert style letter um you know, after LeBron left Miami. And so it's it's still, you know, I don't know if it's raw. The fact that he was able to admit that maybe shows that it's not quite as raw as it was certainly in that moment. But I think you have to have even sometimes a little bit more time go by for guys to open all the way up or for them to step back and say, like, yeah, I'm ready to tell this story. And so part of me feels that way about it um, is that uh, I kind of caught lightning, lightning in a bottle with this one just because I think enough time had gone by that people said, why not? You know, let, let me talk to him. Let me tell him what really happened. And because of that, got new details on the finals from 94 that had never been out there before. A couple of details from that 97 fight with the Heat that had never been out there. Definitely some details on Riley's departure from the Knicks that had not quite been out there. Um, But, you know, when 25 or 30 years go by, people are like, ah, you know, like I'm not gaining anything by holding this back. It's time for people to know. And I think I benefited from a lot of people, certainly in Anthony Mason's orbit, too, doing that. Because, you know, um, they want people to know what it was during those years. And how people operated, how they how they clicked, how they didn't click, how they didn't get along. But uh, so I'm, I'm, I feel like the next project has to have some of that where there's a little bit of distance from whatever the issue was. Can't wait to see it. You mentioned uh, the fight between the Knicks and the Heat, or I guess they had multiple fights. Uh, there are multiple fights, on-court fights throughout this book. Uh, which one should people go back and watch? Like, what's the wildest fight for the Knicks in the 1990s? Well, if you just want to laugh a little bit, because nobody was hurt. I guess, you know, no one's hurting any of them, really. Seriously hurt. The, the funniest one might be the 93 one with the Suns, where you've got Greg Anthony. Greg Anthony, <laughs> like a very beloved person in NBA circles, someone that's, you know, prominent in the NBA media now. Um, super mild-mannered. I, I make the point in the uh, in the book that he, you know, he told the Knicks during a pre-draft interview that he was going to run for president someday. It's like someone that had his stuff together, but then sucker punches Kevin Johnson and not just sucker punches him, but sucker punches Kevin Johnson while he's not on the court playing because he's got an ankle injury. So he comes off the bench in the ugliest pajama pattern button down shirt you'll ever see and decides to sucker punch Kevin Johnson, who, by the way, as we talk about, you know, politicians and presidents, Kevin Johnson later become the mayor of Sacramento, interestingly enough. So he punches Kevin Johnson. That one might be the interesting one to watch the most weird one to watch it was like two separate fights two separate brawls um the the one that i think stands out the most and i also think is most consequential to the knicks was the one in the year after that against the bulls in 94 where Derek harper basically suplexes jojo english uh michael was not with the bulls at that time but that was also the scotty pippen game where he decides to take himself out of the game and tony kukoc is the game winner um but that fight was 
crazy. And, you know, for some of you guys that have seen the, the book trailer, essentially like a movie trailer that I had Jade Hoy build uh, from Count the Dings, that I had him build, he pulls footage from that fight, and they show David Stern. The, the fight basically went right up to the stand uh, courtside, and, you know, players were kind of in the laps of fans, and, you know, in some cases the laps of the, the minority owners of the Bulls had their daughters in the front row and you know john starks was ending up like right up against them and so it was a bad situation for the nba from where david stern sat and david stern was sitting three rows up at half court with his wife and then he has a completely mortified look on his face in the video that um that i had jade hoy <laughs> um he was worried about the league's image constantly and that happening and it happening in front of really well-heeled high high rolling fans it prompted the league to change the rules basically immediately on fights and the idea that you cannot leave the bench or else we're going to suspend you, you know, if you leave the bench during an altercation. And that came back to bite the Knicks in the ass in 97 because they had a 3-1 lead on the Heat. Um, their P.J. Brown basically flips Charlie Ward over at, right at the end of that game. And because it happened in front of the Knicks bench, the Knicks bench clears to go kind of go in and save Charlie Ward. Uh, but because their bench cleared, everybody got suspended. They suspended six people in total between the two teams, but five of them were Knicks players, including Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Allen Houston, and Larry Johnson. Basically, like, their four most important guys on that team. And, uh, it, you know, they ended up losing the series, and in a lot of cases, a lot of people would tell you they felt like that was their best last chance to really compete for a title. They were really good that year. They had a little bit more offense than normal that year. Um, but that 94 one is the one that sticks out to me as important because because of that Derek Harper fight, the rules shifted to then ban the idea of coming off the bench. And that was what kind of came back to really hinder the Knicks in 97, that rule. Well, Chris, want to thank you for coming on. Such great stuff. And also, thank you for burning the image of Pat Riley running into the Knicks locker room, <laughs> doing a baseball slide, cleats up on the Knicks logo on the carpet. I mean, that sounds like that would hurt. Uh, but I appreciate you. And I'm sure this is a very exhausting media tour this last couple of days, but you deserve every minute of it. This is an incredible book, Blood in the Garden. Get it wherever you get your books. So, Chris, thank you so, so much. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate you. Keep up all your great work. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. we got to take a quick break, but after the break, lots of good stuff. We'll get into the Knicks game, the Knicks-Wolves game in MSG. Frank Vogel reportedly being on the hot seat. Miles Turner out until after the trade deadline what kind of wrench that throws into the Pacers plans we got a little minor trade all that after the break but first got some selling to do ourselves looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, you're back with No Dunks. It was a quiet night in the association, but a good one in the garden. The Minnesota Timberwolves, 
They took care of the Knicks right at the end there. Looked like the Knicks were coming back, and then Carl Anthony Towns gets the ball, top of the key, faces up Randall, hits the and one, was excited, obviously. That was the game winner to seal it, Lee. What were your takeaways from this one? It definitely felt like the Knicks won this game after that third quarter. They were down 10 at the half, and they come back. It was a really impressive third quarter, and they seemed to be in charge of that fourth quarter, but it was Towns at the end. Now, Towns finishes with 20 points and the game-winning basket, but to be honest, I'm a little disappointed with how he performed in quarters two and three and, and a lot of the fourth because the Knicks had Mitchell Robinson foul out. He was in foul trouble. Taj Gibson the same. And that's a sort of occasion, I think, where Towns really has to stamp himself as the best, certainly the best big man on the floor. And I didn't think he really did that, that he was a little bit too passive in that third quarter when the when the Knicks made their big run. Yeah, only thought, three shots in the second and third quarters combined. Yeah, and and I just think that's one, because he started off well, hitting threes, he went inside for a dunk, he was aggressive, and then he seemed to, for some reason, shy away from that. And again, when these other guys, like Mitchell Robinson's a good, you know, athletic younger guy, but he was in foul trouble. Taj Gibson, respectfully, I love what he's brought to the league, but at this stage of his career, Towns should be just like really uh, pounding him inside. But anyway, the Wolves get away with it. They, they go in, they, they're down, there's a big run, Fournier's on fire again, the garden's going crazy there. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the Knicks were sort of pulling away from it. And then the Wolves get back into it late and uh, and close it out. And so a really important win for them. They got good tr- contributions from a lot of the guys, especially on their bench. Uh, Jalen Noel, I thought he was really good for them last night. Beasley started off okay too. Um, so this is a, a surprising one of those games where you're like, wow, the Knicks actually lost. It felt like they won. The Wolves won, even though it felt like they sort of <laughs> gave yeah. this one away at the end. They can both be upset with the way things yeah. went down a little bit, right? Like to give up for the Wolves to give up 40 points to the Knicks in the third quarter. That was that was strange. And it definitely felt like the tide had completely turned. This is going to be a game, uh, a tale of two halves, if mm. you will, after that Quentin Grimes layup and everything was popping. But yeah, Jalen Noel, I thought kind of saved the game for the Timberwolves. 11 points in the fourth quarter. He's been playing really well lately. I feel like that sometimes, you know, in the middle of a season, you can see a guy start to get a whole bunch more minutes. The scouting report isn't necessarily out on him yet, so he's able to get busy just shooting floater after floater after floater. That was a uh, that was really clutch for for the Wolves and I also thought what a shot by Towns that game oh, yeah. winner man that was a tough shot he's fading left sort of out of bounds gets the ball back to his right and somehow gets the right English on it especially considering he had missed a basically wide open yeah. layup very similar um to that shot uh with what maybe 2 minutes left or something like that so I thought that was pretty crazy but it was it was good for Towns he said afterwards I told my dad everyone's going to get a chance to have their Madison Square Garden moment I felt that was for me tonight. That definitely was the biggest moment he's ever had at MSG. Sort of his hometown team, a uh, New Jersey guy, but uh, right there uh, in the area. So, yeah, I thought that was a great win for the Wolves, and they're back to 500. Good stuff. Yeah, we're just talking 90s with Chris Herring and Carl Anthony Towns. Did it in those throwback T-Wolves jerseys that are beauties from the 90s. You know, you got to think Kevin Garnett when you see those jerseys. So, yeah, great move fading left it. And it is one of those games for Carl Anthony Towns that I thought he was going to fade in the fourth quarter as well. John Krasinski wrote about it on The Athletic Guy, who's covered uh, the Timberwolves forever. Watching Towns in the first quarter, 11 points. Looked amazing. Mm. Kind of faded in the second and third quarter. Usually Carl Anthony Towns would also fade in the fourth quarter and just not take over like he needed to. And he only got the ball on that game winner really late in the shot clock. I think it was like eight seconds left on the shot clock. And he faced up Randall and hit that really tough shot. So a good win for them. While the Knicks, they just can't put four quarters together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, you know, it almost looked like they should have pulled this out. But also that first half, 
uh, they just they yeah they they do struggle to put together quarter after quarter after quarter. The Timberwolves are coming here to Atlanta tonight, uh, so this is what really matters for the Timberwolves. Yeah, they're 500 now. They're the seventh seed in the West, but these games after the good wins, they've, they've got to string some together uh, to really move up the standings. But there is a, an opening for the Minnesota Timberwolves here with the, the Lakers struggling, the Clippers struggling, the Nuggets injured, that they could jump up uh, and get an actual playoff spot. And they're pretty healthy right now, so no excuses. Uh, Russell's back. Ed, Edwards is there. You know They've got their young players. Everyone's available and that, that's a huge thing right now in the NBA just being having uh, guys not in <laughs> the protocols best ability not, yeah. is available exactly oh, yeah. exactly oh, yeah. so uh, you know for the Wolves if you look at them right now yeah you, you say 500 and they're basically four five games technically up on the Kings who are just outside the playing tournament so right now the Wolves certainly are in a strong position to uh, return to the at least playing tournament here at that worst. <laughs> they I mean, better. I mean, they, ha- they have to at this point. Uh, I mean, yeah. Paul George is now resting indefinitely. We don't know if we'll see Lillard again this season for the Blazers. That's 9-10 and 10 right there. The Lakers have been struggling. They'll be getting Anthony Davis back in not too long. So, I mean, sixth seed should be the goal for Minnesota at this point. It's... I mean, they could maybe catch Denver, I think. You know, they're a game behind, but two losses behind in the loss column. Denver doesn't have their full team this year, but they're not going to have their full team this year. Whereas the Wolves have done a really good job of going through some tough times and actually getting things back together. I mean, we could have given them a winner of the weekend yesterday (laughs) for not being losers of the weekend, (laughs) right? right? Like, they've done a better job of being consistent recently compared to earlier in the season. It is strange. Yeah, as you said, Timberwolves are 507th, five games up on the the 11th-seeded Kings. It would be tough for them to fall out of the playing picture. Uh, But other news that we're not going to get to, Paul George, as you said, going to be resting another couple weeks he was going to be reevaluated this week and he was and and unfortunate news for them the elbow isn't healing mm. so two to three more weeks he'll be out but positive for them as i mentioned those teams the lakers and the clippers and, and the blazers that you threw in with damian lillard they could easily just be a, a ho-hum team these next few weeks and hopefully get Still, paul george yeah. back Kawhi could come back and the fact that the Kings are so far down you know 10 games uh, below 500 in the 11th spot means the Clippers could just float into the playing tournament insert a Kawhi and Paul George and that's uh, that's the team you do not want to face in that tournament so there's some uh, some news we added in there Um, before we get to is this news any comments on the Warriors win do you care that they took care of the Pistons uh, pretty pretty easily. Clay had a good game. Yeah, that's all it is, is Clay had his best uh, shooting game since he came back, finished with 21 points, looked good. But yeah, they uh, they were up, uh, what, 28 points there at halftime. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a real surprise, but uh, no, you know. There's not, there's not much you can sort of dig into in a game <laughs> yeah. when it's 28-point halftime deficit. You're like, well, yeah, you know, so. Not needed. No. Nah, because we've got some news. Well, we've got news, but you guys tell me. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll give you a few headlines. You let me know if it's newsworthy. This first one, via The Athletic, in a juicy article by Bill Orm and Sam Amick, the Lakers lost by 37 to the Nuggets Saturday, and head coach Frank Vogel's job was essentially on the line when L.A. played Utah in their next game on Monday, but the Lakers won, so Vogel is safe for now, according to Orem (laughs) and Amick. Are these reports news, Trey? 
Interesting. Are they news? <laughs> I don't. I don't know why I didn't think of it as, as "Is this news?" But that is one hundred percent the segment yeah. we're doing. So <laughs> it's not news now until Frank Vogel is officially fired. So I guess it's semi news because the Lakers they're down bad right now. They've lost three of their last four, ten of their last sixteen. Though they did get probably their best win of the season against the Jazz this week, but it's left them at twenty fourth on offense, seventeenth on defense. Eighth place in the Western Conference, and everybody is apologizing. And the worst part of this is that it's all happening when LeBron is playing some of his best basketball. Because a lot of the times with the LeBron team, if they're struggling through the season, you're like, oh, just wait till LeBron turns it on. Mm. He's turned it on, and it hasn't made a huge difference. So if he's playing well and the team isn't, obviously, you're going to look at the coach, and it's kind of par for the course, but I don't think this is great from the Lakers to just keep him dangling like this. Oh. Dan Wojcicki reported that there are no current plans <laughs> to replace Frank Vogel, but current is the big word. So, like, how do you get huge buy-in here when the thing that really needs to change for the Lakers is they got to get back to playing defense. They got to be a good defensive team, which will help when Anthony Davis gets back, but you have to have buy-in to be a defensive uh, defensive team that succeeds, and if, if you're, like, thinking our coach might be gone the next day if we have a bad game. I don't understand how that's a tenable situation. Uh, They got a six-game road trip coming up here. Going to be one of their toughest stretches of the season. Definitely their longest road trip. That can be a coach switching time, Mm -hmm. I do think, similar to the Hawks last season. But we're past the halfway mark here. They don't have a lot of trade assets. Taylor Horton Tucker is apparently going to be in the mix now officially because that's about the only other thing they can do besides... Uh, say goodbye to Frank Vogel. So one of those things is going to happen in not too long, either a trade or a new guy on the bench. Mm. They've never really shown too much affection towards Frank Vogel. He was their third choice when they signed him a few years ago. They get He wins the championship in the bubble and they only give him a one-year extension. And, you know, uh, when you I, I read Mark Stein's um, uh, Substack, he talks a lot of people are just like, they don't show him any real respect for the fact that he won a championship there. And now, again, as Trey mentions, they're basically like, well, we haven't got much to trade. We need to change something. Okay, Frank, you're the easiest one we can get rid of. So, you know, that's. I think that's what's going to happen. If they get off to a bad start on this road trip, uh, Frank might not come back from it because uh, they need to just show their fans, oh, you know, we're doing something, we're going to blame him. When really, I mean, it's the defensive effort is bad. Westbrook hasn't been a good fit. Ariza, Dwight, those guys coming in haven't really had any impact. So, you know, it's it's more a reflection on, on the job Rob Polinka has done, in my opinion. But, uh, of course, when you, when you employ everyone, you can also fire those who you want to fire. <laughs> so uh, Frank's the easiest um, domino here to just sort of mm-hmm. kick out the door. Yeah, it, it sure feels like that is a plausible situation that Frank Vogel will be fired. Until this article came out on The Athletic, I really didn't think that that was a scenario that they would explore. At this point of the season... With Anthony Davis out, you'd think you'd wait until Anthony Davis came back to really evaluate your defense. Obviously, they're they're yeah. not playing well, but at the same time, I mean, you think about uh, LeBron James just ain't waiting around, uh, and, and you have to, you know, you're playing to your personnel, and LeBron needs to win every single year the rest of his career. And if you look back to the firing of the David Blatt scenario when LeBron was with Cleveland midseason. It sure worked for Teron Liu coming in there, uh, but uh, I, it just doesn't feel right to me uh, for for Frank Vogel to be dangling yeah, after he won the championship. They gave him the yeah an extension. I guess now one year extensions extension are yeah lame. One year yeah. extensions are lame duck extensions. Yeah. I guess uh, you know he's that's what Nate McMillan got. I think and uh, was fired after the bubble. I believe down there in Indiana. I think was, you're right. You know it was like 
here, here you go, have an extension, but we don't really mean it. Because if they did, they would say, yes, here's three years. Three years. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we've got some real reason here to invest in our belief in you. But instead, it's more like, we can't really fire you because you want us a championship, but we also don't want to reward you for that. So... So that's weird. I mean, I don't know if I'm just being thrifty, but yeah, you give a guy a, a year in extension, so he's signed through 2023, yeah. and now you're going to fire him and just have to pay him that extra year. Uh, it's just that's strange. Right. But yeah. you don't want him to be a lame duck, as in this is his final year. <laughs> just one year is okay, which yeah. is... Know, that's it's a, a lot of weird, weird stuff. Like, is seventeenth is seventeenth actually a good defense for this Lakers team? Considering Le- LeBron has missed twelve games, Anthony Davis has missed, I think, twenty three games at this point. Yeah. No, wait, no, no, seventeen games at this point. So, like, you're missing two of your best players for a big chunk of the season. Your other defensive guys that you're running out there are Avery Bradley, who was picked up off the scrap heap. Yeah, Dwight Howard, who is past his prime at this point. 17th is actually pretty solid yeah. maybe I don't know but uh I don't know it just uh it seems like he's going to take the blame for a roster that is not made to play defense yeah and Frank had that reputation in Indiana as being a defensive guy so if there's a silver lining here I think his actual reputation is going to be okay because people are going to say you won a championship the Lakers didn't treat you fairly so there will be other jobs out there for him but uh it just it's it, like you say the 17th defense it doesn't feel like that it feels like teams score. they've been even worse yeah. lately too yeah teams just get into the paint anytime they want they move the ball around they get open shots so uh it, it's 17th yeah middle of the table but doesn't really uh meet the eye test you mentioned Frank Vogel as the Pacers defensive stalwart where our next headline comes from ESPN about those Pacers. Pacers big man Miles Turner expected to be sidelined beyond the February 10th trade deadline with a stress reaction in his left foot, possibly complicating the franchise's hopes to deal him prior to the offseason because he has been in rumors for a while now. So is Miles Turner's injury, which is going to extend past February 10th, news Lee <laughs> I, I, I would love to talk to a doctor about it to see like is this something that is he could just heal in a couple of weeks or could this lead to something further down because a big guy with a foot injury could potentially you know it, it's hard for him to get out and practice and uh, get back on the court if he's carrying around a, a, essentially a broken bone there in his foot now if you're the Pacers it's like okay we I mean teams are just not going to trade for him or do teams just go okay it's Miles Turner we wanted him before we can deal with uh, uh, you know him missing a few more weeks here so I guess we just don't really know the severity of that injury and if it is severe and could potentially knock him out for the rest of the season then I think he probably doesn't get traded but if it's considered somewhat minor yeah and it, he can... it seems minor-ish uh, when you re- read into the details he could be examined in, in two weeks or he, you know he's likely to be re-examined in two weeks trade deadlines a week after that yeah. and he could be back a week after that so it doesn't seem like it, this is really a long term thing but yeah, it's got to throw up some flags for teams looking to acquire Miles Turner yeah and I guess maybe it makes Sabonis the, a smidge more likely to be traded than Miles Turner just right. because you kind of know the situation a little bit more whereas Turner you're taking a little bit of risk for this season and they sign for next season as well and I don't know that could be um could give you some pause if you're a team trying to acquire him thinking he's going to be the piece that helps get you into the playoffs if you're a Hornets team or I don't know the Mavericks something like that so yeah I don't know I mean it's strange Miles Turner and it feels like Jeremy Grant are kind of the bells of the ball right Mm. now and 
one of them has gone down with a mm. with a stress reaction in his foot, and the other, Jeremy Grant, is saying, "I don't want to go to a team where I'm not going to be the number one guy." Yeah. So they're so there are just a couple of wrenches thrown into the works here as we're heading into the deadline. But most likely, if you're convinced on Miles Turner already, it feels like this probably won't throw you off of that. But maybe maybe it hurts the package that the Pacers will mm. be getting back. I agree. Yeah, it's still still likely that he's dealt that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess he shouldn't have worn heels to the ball. Uh, <laughs> he took a little tumble there. All right, uh, last headline here. If that was if that one wasn't that newsworthy, I'm not sure this one will be. Um, it's a minor trade via ESPN first. A minor three-team deal. The Nuggets get Spurs shooter Bryn Forbes. The Celtics get Denver's Bull Bull, who was traded a couple weeks ago, but he's back with the Nuggets. Now he's going to the Celtics, along with P.J. Dozier, which is an interesting one, who's out for the season. And the Spurs, they get Boston's Juancho Hernan Gomez and a second-round pick via the Nuggets. So, Trey, is this Southern lawyer worthy even, <laughs> or, or no? We got ourselves a minor trade. <laughs> I love it. I actually love this trade. I think this is great for all three teams. You make a trade this small, it can work out for everybody. The Nuggets need a little help on the perimeter. They're getting Bryn Forbes, who is a way better shooter than I thought. I know he's a shooter. I know he's at a 41% shooter from three. But according to ESPN Stats and Info, he's third in three-point field goal percentage over the past four seasons among players with more than 1,000 attempts. That's legit right there. That's Mm -hmm. a legit shooter. He's instantly going to become the best shooter in their rotation. He wasn't a long-term piece for San Antonio. They got a lot of good young guards. And he's got postseason experience. So I think that's nice for the Nuggets to get him without really giving up much. P.J. Dozier, I actually like him as a player, but he's out for the season right now, so he's not helping. Bull Bull had to have surgery. He's already out of their plans. They traded him once. So they got an upgrade for expiring contracts that aren't playing. Good stuff for Denver and good stuff for the Celtics to save a little bit of money and good stuff for us because we get to say, where's Wancho? Mm. And now he's in San Antonio. Mm. So winners all around as far as I'm concerned. I just remember Bryn Forbes outscored Jimmy Butler in the playoffs last year. Uh, he, he is one of those guys who can get hot, but it seems like uh, he hasn't done that for a while. But for the Nuggets, yep, yeah, they can use always a little bit of extra shooting around uh, uh, Nikola Jokic there. You mentioned Bol Bol. Basically, it was like, all right, you're not staying here. We're going to trade you to whoever just takes on your contract, basically. So uh, that's it. But yeah, when I saw that trade come through, I was looking for the juicy part and... Uh, <laughs> Bryn Forbes is where it ended, really. So I was like, okay, this is just more a, uh, a, a, an admin trade, you know, paperwork type of trade. <laughs> well, it's a sneaky good move, I think, for the Celtics because P.J. Dozier is a player that can play in their rotation. They've lacked uh, a bench presence for a while, especially from uh, the backup guard spot. Josh Richardson has definitely helped out. P.J. Dozier is out for the season, as you said, Trey. Uh, but to have him long-term is a good idea, basically just giving up Juancho Hernan Gomez, who hasn't been a part of the rotation. And yeah, maybe the Spurs can do something with uh, another European big. Maybe uh, you know they've already they've already got the the American big in Drew Eubanks. Uh, they've got the Australian big yes. in Jock Landale. They've, <laughs> they've got another European big in Jakob Pertl, and add another one to the mix. Juancho Hernan Gomez. He's he's like my uh, Joffrey Laverne, I think, on the San Antonio Spurs. Like just <laughs> another one. Yeah. Fabrizio Alberto. Oh, yeah. Another one of those. Yeah. yeah, he's on the call. Yeah, he's on the call, mm-hmm. uh, helping out there. So Juancho, in theory, is a good player. 
Um, but he's just never been. Yeah, able to I always, I always think he's solid when he's on the court. But uh, teams don't play him all that nah, much. But no. we'll see what he does in San Antonio. Two straight years though that the Spurs have made oh, a mid-season oh. trade. That's a good point. The game has changed. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and yeah, maybe in the short term, as you said, they gave up Bryn Forbes, uh, who is you know a solid player, to play their young guys. What is their plan? I'm just mm. wondering if they're going to get in. On a real big trade here, three weeks before the the deadline, are they gonna they're gonna go all in? Because it looks like they're you know, at least they're wheeling and dealing. Doesn't happen very often with the San Antonio Spurs. All right, uh, another quickie break, but we've got a tweet of the night coming up. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Wouldn't you love to travel without the actual, you know, traveling part? For example, I want to go to Lisbon, let's say. I just snap my fingers, I'm there. No driving to the airport, no flight delays, no fools at security who still don't know that, yes, you need to take your laptop out of your bag and place it in the tray. Oh my God, how long have we been doing this? Travel without traveling. I want it both ways, but that's not possible. It is with Mack Weldon, though. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But this is possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I've got it all. I got the air-knit underwear. I got the Ace Collection sweatpants. I've got the Silver Peak Polo. Everything fits perfectly. All I get is compliments. Mack Weldon has figured this stuff out. Because performance fabric usually means clothes that look or feel sort of techy or shiny. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of a busy life. They look like regular clothes, which is good. I want regular clothes, but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with the promo code NODUNKS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code NODUNKS. All right, now it's time for Tweet of the Night. Mm. 
Tweet of the night. Wow. Twitter. We got Trey. Well, we took a little road trip over the weekend. Tassie, me, you, Skeets, and our buddy Grish headed to Memphis to see the Bulls play the Grizzlies on MLK Day. Go and check out our YouTube page for a video of how that all went down. We talked about it on the show yesterday, and we got talking about lawyer billboards. You know, mm. shout out to Neil Flit, shout out to Morris Bart, <laughs> shout out to Mama <laughs> Justice and Alexander Shunara, of course. So then we put up a tweet post game saying, we want your NBA lawyer billboards. And y'all came through in a big way. Some of you even made actual billboards uh, for these. So we'll get started All with right. Ziggy, longtime stream teamer, came through with better call Gasols <laughs> and then added their tagline, one call. We're tall. <laughs> that's great if you need to get something off the top shelf. Maybe that's where you keep your magic spoon. I don't know. That's where I keep mine. I also love this from the Sydney Sea Kings. Slip, fall, call Frank the Tank. We'll get you bank. Mm. And now this to me looks like an actual lawyer named yeah. Frank yeah. Kaminsky. Yeah, yeah. Spelled differently. Yeah, a little different spelling. It's like the Montrez Harrell sort of spelling of Frank there with the L. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. silent L on yeah, the end. Well done. Yeah, well yeah, that's done. really nice. That's really nice. Also good from Condre3000. This is a great one to ask, especially with the shirt you got on. Out of commission after a workplace injury? Get back on your fleet. Wait, get back on your feet with Freddie Van Vliet. Mm. All-star only. 1-800-VAN-VLEET. If you call that number, let us know what happens. And our final one comes from Adam Gaston, my favorite. Getting some jams? <laughs> Hit up the hams with 1-800-JC-HAMON. <laughs> Call it up, Jose Calderon, uh, for some fine Iberico hams. There's a whole wow. bunch more of these. You can check them all out on our Twitter page, at No Dunks Inc. We retweeted a bunch of them because there were a lot of great ones. These ones just look the best visually because these people want the next step, putting them on a billboard. I got a question, though. Mm-hmm. How much does it cost to rent a billboard? Mm, good question. I guess, yeah, I guess you do like a three-month sort of stint. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess you could do however, however long you want, but yeah. it's sort of a, like, it's like, I think it's like renting an apartment. You've got to do a minimum, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> minimum, minimum stay. Minimum They're lease. not going to go up there for an yeah, hour. You know? Yeah. Uh, do, you think it's, um, do you think it's prohibitively expensive to do one billboard? We're not going to go full Morris Bart style where yeah. the guy's got billboards everywhere, um, but one single billboard somewhere down here in the south what's your, what's your plan you southern lawyer okay. uh-huh. yeah. it looks exactly like you know just like yeah. colorful weird color yeah. blocking a picture of me wearing a cowboy hat and it says we got all sales a podcast yeah and then like, like has all of our social information and stuff up there so you think it's a lawyer's billboard yeah but it's really a podcast's billboard i like this idea yeah i but, think we find out well, it doesn't cost a lot no it doesn't. I don't think. I mean, it's location, location, location yeah. matters. In the big city, in the big city yeah. costs more than where we were. It was a, an incredible drive to Memphis because he just saw so many, so so many. Mama Justice, for yeah. one, was a great yep. one. Uh, but no, it's. I think the cost will be fine. I think it's tenable for us. We can make that happen. Where well, you, if you know a billboard lesser (laughs) renter yeah if you know somebody uh in the south or mid-south market definitely slide into our dm so we can 
price a billboard? I think uh, if we start advertising, you know, obviously the podcast numbers will blow up. So mm, I have Brad. to imagine the smartest way to do it is a billboard on the side of the road. That's still an advertising okay. way. Yeah. According, according to what I've just Googled, so I haven't really it been able legit. to vet this, <laughs> about seven fifty per month. Seven fifty for a whole month? Yeah. Seven hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, that's worth it. I think so. <laughs> that's totally worth uh, it. Yeah. Cost effective, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a strange thing. It's like depends on format, circulation, demographic, graphics. Right. It's yes. sounds like it's worth it. Yeah. Oh, here's another good line we could use. Stuff in traffic. Stuck in traffic. <laughs> cue up a classic. Oh yeah, I like that one. No dunks. <laughs> Yeah, Send us some some yeah, uh, some billboard ideas yeah. for us because now I'm uh, now I'm not thinking this is a bad idea. Yeah. I mean it's a bad idea, but it's a good bad idea. Yeah, yeah. it's well, a good it's, content yeah. idea. It's like you can go both ways. You think maybe people who don't people who look at billboards maybe aren't podcast listeners, but at the same time they're in cars. Uh, <laughs> That's the perfect time. It's the absolute perfect time, but it is a strange thing just to think. Yeah, we gotta get billboards QR exist. Code. Billboards yeah. exist. Yeah, the QR code. Remember when we were at the Grizzlies game, a QR code came on the Jumbotron, and you were able to you know, put your camera and scan a QR code. Just like yeah. that. That's a that, distance. That's, that blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, some people are sliding in the stream, team. I'm liking this from Ignatius Roberto. Mama Justice? <laughs> Papa Wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wedgie's hard to sort of rhyme itself isn't it like, you know. <laughs> yeah oh but i do like the the uh, the revenge fact like going at mama justice you know bring her real <laughs> oh yeah we're real her in. Her, yeah. yeah yeah she'll she'll bring us some fans yeah and she'll try and shut us down who cares that's fine go ahead mama justice all right <laughs> let's get to the uh pick them payoff uh a wild one last night minnesota at the knicks i was able to pull out the win because the Knicks were two and a half point dogs and they lost by two. I was the only one to win that one. So I make up a game on all three of you guys. Tonight, 13 games on the schedule. The big one we're looking at, now there is a double header going on on national TV, but we're excited about my Cleveland Cavaliers visiting Trey Kirby's Chicago Bulls. And uh, same as yesterday, in that three of us are taking one team and trade the lone Bullsman. They're at home. They're a one-and-a-half-point dog, so essentially a pick em. And Skeets, myself, and Lee all think the Cavs will win by two or more, while the Bulls can lose by one or obviously win outright. Trey, how much faith do you have on this in this struggling Bulls team right now? Well, the news, according to Casey Johnson, is that Alex Caruso is pos- po- probable for okay. tonight. So Alex Caruso is back, so I'm thinking the Bulls are back. New streak starts tonight. I <laughs> thought you were going to say is posit- so yeah, good posit- positively returning yeah, to the lineup tonight. It's always a weird one with guys coming back for not only health and safety protocols, but Caruso. Injury as well, in, yeah. In this case, an injury, which is like six weeks. He has been out. Yeah, uh, he's been, he hasn't played for a long time, and the Bulls' defense has looked like it. So no Levine, no Lonzo. Caruso probably won't be up to full minutes capacity, which is too bad because Darius Garland has been balling. So maybe he'll be cold tonight. Vucci's we'll going to have his hands full too, I would think, in the middle there with those big, long... That's a bounce-back game for Vucci tonight. <laughs> I've been thinking good, good games, sweet Vucci, baby. Bad games, 
boiled vooch. <laughs> boiled vooch. Boiled vooch. <laughs> and he had a plate full of boiled vooch. Uh, great stuff. So 13 games. We will be back tomorrow to talk about that schedule, I'm sure, because there'll be some great ones. Hopefully our man Skeets will be back quickly out of health and safety protocols to be with us tomorrow. Uh, until then, Clipper Bros. You heard it here first. Have a great time. Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. And remember, one thing we learned on our road trip, Trey, you solved this mystery that I've had in my car for a long time. Every time we want to film our kids, my wife will turn around. She'll turn on her camera, start recording a video. Oh, music cuts out. Cuts out. Kids get, kids get so pissed the video is not a good one. <laughs> but you found a solution. Here's the key. Put this on our TikTok. We need to get our we need to get our hints on on TikTok. Uh, so yeah. here's a great TikTok hint. If you want your music to continue playing when you record a video, start in photo mode. Uh-huh. Hold down the photo shutter. It switches the video, and the music keeps playing. Wow, life hack, baby, right there. That's See, how you do it. Crazy. See you on our TikTok. Embrace the day, people.